0: If a drummer was offered $1,000 to play with Bob Dylan or $1,001 to play with Lawrence Welk, it will always be Lawrence Welk.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hello Cleveland! Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for too much effing perspective the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most final tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in LA and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band,
2: The Falling Walendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for the Bodines and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious.
1: Our guest today is Brian Ritchie, bass player for the band that made Milwaukee famous, the Violent Femmes.
2: We're going to talk to Brian about witnessing the Velvet Underground reunite in 1992, how persistence led him to meeting the Sex Pistol Johnny Rotten, and why Nirvana opened for the Femmes, even though by that time Nirvana was a much bigger band.
1: So, without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show!
3: It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not it really? too much. There's too much yeah, perspective
1: there. Alex, you and I are from Wisconsin. It used to be a point of pride with me, but given how the state has changed politically and culturally, eh, not so much anymore. Right, right. But certainly, whether I like it or not, there is no denying my origins
2: or yours. Milwaukee is in our blood. It's true. We at Milwaukee Talkies bleach Litz and cry Pabst, even though neither of those are brewed in Milwaukee anymore.
1: You're such a beer historian. <laughs> well, anyways, that's why today is a very special episode for us. Milwaukee and Wisconsin are the home to a number of music legends. Steve Miller, Jerry Harrison from the Talking Heads, Boney Vare, Jane Wheedland from the Go-Go's, Liberace, Les Paul. We could go on all day. I actually only had two more names. Yours and mine. Ah, But, you know, out of all those hometown heroes, there's little disagreement on who made the greatest album in Wisconsin music history, The Violent Femmes.
2: Yep, I completely agree. Their first album is an undisputed masterpiece. Even their origin story is legendary.
1: Just hold off on that story, right? We're not going to spin it yet because we talk about it in our conversation with Brian. But when The Femmes burst onto the national music scene in 1983, it was really a shocker because Milwaukee was considered a wasteland by major record labels.
2: Yeah, and the Fems were really a one-off, didn't seem to change that. I mean, it wasn't until a few years later in 1985 when my former employers, the Bodines, were signed by Slash Records, which is perhaps not coincidentally the same label that signed the Fems.
1: And then it was Crickets again until Virgin Records flew out to Milwaukee in 1990 to check out Yours Truly's band, Women's Liberace. I can't tell you how big news that was. Every other band in town was begging to open for us, and there were all sorts of rumors about what was going on, mostly spread by our drummer, but <laughs> it kind of reminded me of a Christopher Guest's movie, Waiting for Guffman. It ended up, we didn't get signed, and Milwaukee went back to being the equivalent of Music Siberia for many years. Music
2: Siberia? S-Siberia, Siberia, Siberia. Did, did you forget why you and I moved out west?
1: No, I did not. I kept my mucklucks to remind me of my hometown. Thank you.
2: Yeah, well, weather aside, Milwaukee is a great place to be from, and I always enjoy talking about my adopted hometown.
1: So does our guest today, Brian Ritchie, the inimitable bass player from the Violent Femmes.
2: Yeah, and the Femmes are 10 studio albums into their 40-year career. They're still going strong, and Brian remains in Milwaukee and through and through, even though he currently lives in Tasmania.
0: Which,
1: he informed me, is not the town in between Kenosha and Racine.
2: <laughs> you have such an American perspective on geography.
1: You know, I'd tell you where to go, but I have a hard time telling you how to get there, Alex. <sighs>
2: well, I know where our listeners can go. They can visit our website, tmepshow.com, and sign up for our mailing list. We'd really appreciate that. And now, to our conversation with Brian Ritchie after a short break.
1: Now, a musician from a band that NBA Hall of Famer Dennis Rodman once jammed with until he dumped a beer on lead singer Gordon Gano's head. Brian Ritchie from the Violent Femmes. Brian, long time no see. Thanks for joining us today on Too Much Effing Perspective. I want to get right into it. Tell me, what is your favorite scene in the movie This Is Spinal Tap?
0: Okay, first of all, Spinal Tap is not a fictional movie it's a documentary the actors portray every band that ever existed you know because we've all been through all of those moments like for example getting lost walking around under the stage can't find the stage that's happened to us the in-store where nobody shows up happened to us girlfriend trying to take over the band happened to us so i mean all of these things it's very real so it was almost painful to watch the movie because it showed how much of a cliche we were because spinal taps a cliche, right? And we always think, oh, the fems are radical and different and unusual. No, we're also a cliche because all the same stuff happens to us.
1: I came upon a story that is pretty much a quintessential spinal tap moment for violent fems. It was a Trenton, New Jersey gig that had like four or five spinal tap moments rolled into one.
0: It was a pretty remarkable gig. It was in a dive. and I forgot what the name of it is now. I think it might have been called City Gardens or something like that. And we're playing, and suddenly we see a disruption happening, and there was a side room, like the bar was off to the side of the music room. And somebody was like, waving a gun around in the air. Wow. And then the person gets knocked down. And that was just the start of the chaos. My bass amp caught on fire. Also, the PA stack started wobbling and almost hit Gordon. But Peter, our sax player, pushed Gordon out of the way and saved his little body from being crushed. Peter was rewarded for this by having his saxophone crushed by the PA stack. (laughs) And then another thing that was happening was the lights were very inappropriate, you know, like we would be doing added up and the lights would be really dim. And <laughs> and then suddenly we were doing good feeling and the lights were like flashing like this. and <laughs> we Finally told Peter, go check this out. What's happening. And he said that it was because the uh, lighting person was on LSD. Oh no. So that show c- goes down on record as our most ridiculous kind of event.
2: I have to do one interpretation, though. I want to say that since it was New Jersey, that gun part of things may have been a reenactment from Hamilton.
0: Actually, what they found was that the gun was a dummy, you know, like there was no Uh. bullet. But that doesn't make people feel good while it's happening. You know, like we weren't on stage thinking, oh, that gun's probably a fake. No problem. We were like, they might kill us. And considering this is America, that's quite possible.
2: Oh, boy.
1: Your anecdote reminds me of a crazy gig of my own back in the mid-1980s in Chicago with my band, The Garners. We were playing Phyllis's musical in on Division Street, which at the time was a really sketchy part of town. And it was about 4.30 in the afternoon, and we were just coming in to do our sound check for the gig later that night. And the drummer from this headlining band, Sold American, do you remember them?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that.
1: Yeah, well, he's hitting his snare over and over for the sound guy. And this really annoys one of the locals at the bar, an older dude wearing a cowboy hat for some reason. And this guy tells the drummer to stop playing. And the drummer says, no, I have to do this for the gig tonight. And the guy doesn't accept that. And it goes back and forth. And it starts to escalate to the point where the guy from the bar stands up and he has a big ass knife in his hand. And I'm the only one who can see him because I'm standing right behind him holding my amp in one hand. And so I put down my amp and I instinctively grab a bar stool and I'm about to hit this guy over the head. And suddenly there's this kaboom outside the club and everyone runs outside. And an ambulance had hit all the cars in front of the club, destroying them. And one of the cars was my bass player, Mark Schroeder's and Mark is standing five feet away from his car. He was seconds away from being killed, and he's white as a ghost. And uh, eventually, everyone goes back into the bar. The guy with the knife disappears, and we end up playing the gig that night horribly because Mark can't do anything. He's actually suffering from shock. And that's about the craziest gig I ever had.
0: See, this is the thing that the public does not understand. You know, they think that we just miraculously appear on stage and it's perfect every time. And that's all they ever see. But they don't know the, the amount of torment that we go through just trying to get to the gig.
1: Yeah. We interviewed Oak Road Medicine Show and they said, you know, we'll play for free, but we get paid for all the shit that goes up to the show.
0: That's a good model. Yeah, I agree with that.
2: Brian, Alan and I are Wisconsinites, so it's always great to talk to our hometown
0: heroes. Yes, I'm Milwaukee born and bred. Milwaukee all the way. Yeah. I'm the only one in the FEMS that was really a Milwaukee. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because Victor was from Racine, I'm from Milwaukee, and Gordon was born in New York City.
2: So I grew up in a few different places in Wisconsin, Beaver Dam, went to high school in Green Bay. And I just want to say this conversation is particularly fun for me, Brian, because the Femmes eponymous debut album was the soundtrack of my junior year. I went to Abbott Pennings High School in Depeer, Wisconsin. My talent show band played Blister in the Sun. Wow. Our junior class was a little bit rowdy. We even had our junior prom canceled because of our misbehavior. And so when I dedicated Blister in the Sun to those damn juniors from the school auditorium stage, the place just erupted. And that was probably the best audience response I ever got for anything I ever did as a band leader.
0: That's kind of echoing what happened the first time that Gordon and I played together was at his high school. And he was being inducted into the National Honor Society. Yeah, we didn't play Blister in the Sun, but we played Give Me the Car, (laughs) which we were not supposed to play because that song has what in those days would have passed for risque lyrics and obscenities. And when we did that, the audience erupted into chaos, just like what happened with you, Alex.
2: Brian, I was tour manager for the Bodines for a number of years.
0: Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah, now I remember, yeah. I'll
2: relate one Spinal Tap moment between Bodine's and Violent Femmes. There was a gig in 1993 where we all converged on, of all places, Charleston, West Virginia, to play Mountain Stage. I remember. And I was looking back on that. Cheryl Crow was there, too, which I had not recalled. But she was opening for the Bodine's on that tour. Anyway, at Mountain Stage, it was funny because you guys were playing at that time with Guy Hoffman, who was the Bodine's original drummer. That's right. Guy Hoffman, no relation to me. And the way they did things was just for ease of turnover on stage and things like that, you had to use their drum set. And of course, that always pissed off the Bodies, especially pissed off Kurt Newman, the singer and guitar player, because he just, we got to have our show, got to have our stuff. But I didn't want to fight about it as a tour manager. I agreed. And then all of a sudden you guys set up and Guy was using his own drum set. And it was just like, what the fuck? How is it, (laughs) you know, Alex, you're not standing up for us. But anyway, everybody was cranky, but we made it through. And then of course you guys did a killer set when the crowd was on their feet and kind of blew everybody else off stage. It was pretty cool. Pretty fun to be in that room.
0: Yeah, that was a good show.
2: We mentioned Guy Hoffman, who was with you guys for a while. Victor DiLorenzo was founding drummer of the band. You mentioned several similarities to Spinal Tap and Violent Femmes, and that's another one. You've had some... Transitions with drummers.
0: Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. It's funny because we were talking about this the other day. As you mentioned, Victor was the original drummer. Then Guy came in. Then Victor came back. Then we added John Sparrow on Cajon. So we had two drummers. And then Victor left again. And we added Brian Viglione from Dresden Dolls. On drums but Sparrow was still playing the cajon and then Brian left because he wanted to form a band with his wife now ex-wife
1: was her name Janine <laughs> <No. laughs>
0: her name is Olia. <laughs> and then Sparrow just started playing drums and cajon anyway so that's our saga but there was a time on the West Coast which we recently played a gig with Blondie we oh, played with fun. them about two weeks ago and this other time was maybe 15 years ago, and we were also playing with Blondie. Victor was back in the band, so he was playing, but we invited Guy to sit in with us, so there was Guy. Sparrow was also playing with us, so that's three <laughs> drummers. And then we had this other guy, Hani Nasser, who's now unfortunately passed away, but he's an Arabic percussionist. He was playing, and then we had another percussionist. So we had like five <laughs> percussionists, and uh, it was funny as hell you know because the femmes are minimal with percussion (laughs) so suddenly we have five percussionists victor was a little bit hissy about this whole thing you know he just kept glaring at the other ones but i'm the OG. i didn't care because i just thought it sounded so funny in my mind it's like there's the drums you know i don't care if it's one drummer a hundred drummers it's just the drums, you know, it's like there's this racket that's going on near me. I don't care how many people are making it. So to me, it was normal, but Victor didn't like that very much.
2: <laughs> Amazingly, the FEMS first record, it'll be the 40 year anniversary next year, right? You've got a storied career. Is there one surprising, unexpected, funny insight that you have about surviving in, in the business of entertainment?
0: Well, the only thing that's really important is perseverance. We've always had a demand for the band. It's always been popular. Like people say, when was your heyday or what was your peak period? There's not really a peak period. We were popular from the beginning and we just got more popular and it's still popular, but it's not current. It's not like a buzz now. It's not like a hot new band, but it's still a popular band. The main thing is to just keep going. And this was illustrated at the same gig we did with Blondie a couple of weeks ago. We ended up sharing a trailer with Johnny Rotten. Oh, my goodness. Who was one of the people that, obviously, the Sex Pistols and that whole era of music was a big influence on us and made us want to be musicians. So there we were. Sharing a trailer with one of our not really heroes, but somebody that's significant in the rock music yes. world, and that only happens because we keep going. You just if you keep going, anything can happen.
1: Yeah, that's really neat. Let's talk about the first album. You know, the first Violent Femmes album is significant. I mean, it's not just a great album; it's not just a known album. That first album, every generation picks that album up like it's brand new, like it's a totem. What do you think about being part of such an important piece of work?
0: Well, we knew that it was a timeless and great album when we were making it. So it's not a surprise that some people think that way about it. That it also became popular is a plus, but we knew that we were making a classic, even if it would only be for the connoisseurs. Of rock music. We didn't know that it was going to become a generational hand me down kind of thing that just kept inducting new young people into our music. But I guess, you know, if you listen to the album, it makes sense that it acts that way. But our second album, Hallowed Ground, I think is also a significant album that's very underrated because it was one of the first what has come to be called Americana albums. That whole genre wasn't really happening as a kind of a new statement. It was more like you had folk musicians or bluegrass. They're doing their thing, but we were consciously synthesizing all these different strands of American music into one album. So I think we probably had two albums that in various ways are signifiers.
2: And I wanted to ask as a follow-on to Alan's question, is it a pain in the ass in some ways, having your first album be so significant you have 10 albums let's talk about the first one
0: yeah i think it's a very common thing in rock music you know like the velvet underground's first album right meet the beatles even though it wasn't the first album it was still the one that people think of as the first album it's happened to so many bands television marquee moon people like their other albums but that's the album that people still talk about so it's a little frustrating, but at the same time, it's gratifying to know that we got it right the first time <laughs> and that people still like it.
1: You know, I call your first album, John Hughes, without the racism and the sex crimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, because it's, like, it's a sophisticated version of the teenage experience, right? And that's why it speaks to so many generations. And, you know, you brought up the Velvet Underground, which I think, you know, you guys could be cousins. There's a similarity to your style and theirs. And speaking of the Velvet Underground, you have a great story about the first time you met Maureen Tucker, who was their bassist.
0: Well, Mo Tucker came to one of our shows in Phoenix, which was actually in a boxing ring, you know, with the turnbuckles and the ropes. And, you know, we set up and played in there. So afterwards, she came backstage and we're like, whoa, Mo Tucker. (laughs) And... And she said, yeah, I came to check you guys out because I heard that you sound like my old band. You don't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then she flew off the top rope and was disqualified. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. But then Victor and I ended up recording with Mo and actually recording with the Velvet Underground because on one of the songs, it's me, Victor, and the Velvet Underground. There was Mo Tucker, Sterling Morrison, and Kale, and Lou Reed. Wow. Wow. And this was before the Velvet Underground reform. So, Victor and I were in the studio looking at these people and thinking, this is incredible. This is more important than the Beatles getting back together. <laughs> but that's not how it was perceived. You know, it's like it just kind of got released, and a few people said, oh, a bunch of the Velvet Underground are on this album. But nobody really made anything of it. But we thought it was a momentous event. Huh. And Lou Reed played on it? Yeah. Oh, wow. All of them. Nico was dead, but right. otherwise all of them played on it.
1: Well, I just have a quick Milwaukee Lou Reed story. It was probably 1984, and Lou was in town to play. I think the album at the time was New Sensations, maybe. And I'm walking around the Grand Avenue Mall the day before the show, and all of a sudden I walk into Lou and the whole band. And I'm like, shit, I'm going to go see you guys tomorrow night. And he was Lou has a reputation as being let's say curmudgeonly, but he was actually really super nice and signed an autograph and asked me about myself. It was really
0: neat. Yeah, he's a great guy or was, I should say. And we knew him not really well, but we knew him and we encountered him a lot. And his reputation is true that he was very harsh with a lot of people, but he was also very sweet and generous. He was good to us.
1: Hey, listeners, decide for yourself if there's a reason why Alex and I are unheralded musicians. At the end of every episode, we're going to play one of our songs.
2: So stick around. Coachella 2013, which would have been the 30th anniversary of the eponymous album. That was also a reunion gig for the Fems, right?
0: Well, the band was split up and I was living in Australia and I had pretty much forgotten about the band and just thought, oh yeah, well, I used to be in a famous band, get on with it, you know, and I have my own things going and I became a museum curator down in Australia. I was having a lot of fun not thinking about the band. And then I heard that Coachella wanted us to get back together. That was one of their gimmicks. You know, like they got the Stooges back together. And I think they thought, oh, this can be our formula. Let's get some split up bands back together again. And they decided us.
2: Well, good public service, frankly, doing that, I would say. Were there any Spinal Tap moments for you guys kind of getting back in the room together and getting ready for that gig or playing that gig?
0: The Femmes don't rehearse. (laughs) But for some reason, we decided to rehearse that time. And Victor showed up with... Is Victor's an actor, he likes to act, so Victor shows up with his sunglasses on and he's like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what it was like rehearsing, and then we played the shows, and uh, shows were good, we always sound the same, and the music is simple enough that we don't really need to rehearse all the fine points, it, it just kind of comes together. And it was interesting at Coachella because. We decided to play the first album in its entirety, but we didn't announce that cool. or anything. So when we got on stage, we started with Blister in the Sun, as you did at your high school. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as I started the bass riff, then you could just see like tens of thousands of people start running from all areas of the festival to our stage. When it was fun and it got us happening again and then after a few gigs like that we just decided to keep going and we've been going pretty much ever since except we were sidelined by covid
1: yes i've heard of that you know, uh, let's dial back a little bit, and you don't have to really talk about this if you don't want to, but it, Spinal Tap breaks up, and then they reform because of business, right? Because Sex Farm becomes hot in Japan. And the Fems kind of broke up over the issue of commercial placement of your music. And I think I'm on your side in this, in that you didn't want Blister and Son to be in a Wendy's commercial, and Gordon did. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that's a really interesting divergence to what you think music means to you and to your fans and what you owe to the people that love what you do?
0: Well, from a fan's perspective, I mean, a lot of people love that song or love our songs. And they can interpret it any way they want to. But nobody would interpret it as a hamburger. It's not what the song is about. So I just thought it was inappropriate.
1: That's well, a big issue. Like the clash kind of broke up over the US Festival. They got gobs of money, and some of the band didn't really feel
2: right about it. It was a dividing point.
0: Well, different people have different ethics, I guess.
2: There was a legendary story from The Doors, too, that Buick came along and wanted to use Light My Fire, right? Instead of Come On Baby Light My Fire, they wanted Come On Buick Light My Fire. Oh, no. And supposedly that was a big debate within the band whether to do that. And that coincided with the time that Jim Morrison pulled out his penis on stage at a gig in Miami. And that incident had multiple impacts on the band, including Buick not wanting to use Light by Fire anymore.
1: Well, there's a backstory to that you don't know about. Is that on his penis, he had a
2: Ford tattoo. Ah,
0: right. <laughs> That's
2: a deal killer right there. <laughs> deal breaker,
0: there. yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that Nowadays, bands don't think about whether or not they should engage in this kind of activity. They just do it. It's a time change. Maybe I'm antiquated in my views.
1: Well, I have the opposite story with a mutual friend of ours, Brian, Dave Artanian. I was in his studio in the 90s, and I was making a Miller beer jingle for someone. And it was called It Doesn't Get Better Than This. Well, Miller didn't like it, but I really liked it. So I revamped it. And it became a song on Women's Liberace's second album, Adam and Naive. But that's happened before too. Did you know that The Carpenters Close to You was actually originally written by Paul Williams for Crocker Financial out in California? Hmm. And it was a commercial, and then they gave it to Karen Carpenter and they turned it into a number two hit song.
2: Poor girl. Poor girl.
1: Did you ever see the Todd Haynes movie that's on YouTube? He did, as a student at USC, the Karen Carpenter story, and it's, I think, the only movie that's
0: banned. We used to have a VHS of that movie, and we, we would watch it on the bus hmm. when we were on tour. It was a very yeah haunting and spooky movie. I looked at it recently on YouTube, and I could only find like something from... Czechoslovakia, or some place that didn't have any copyright restrictions, it's probably not up there anymore. But it's very hard to find.
1: I heard it's like the only movie banned. It's because they didn't have rights to the music. But it's a really haunting thing. It reminds me of when I was recording an album at Butch Vig Studio with the Welendas. There's a tape in there, and it says "toy porn." Yikes. And it was the frogs. It was a like a four-hour oh. <laughs> movie of dolls having sex. And if you're stoned, it's absolutely mesmerizing.
0: How would you know if it's mesmerizing?
2: (laughs) You got him. You got him, Brian. (laughs) Hey, Brian, I want to ask you about another legendary gig. When you guys played Woodstock 1994, and half a million people were there, kind of chaotic scene. Any Spinal Tap moments that you remember from that gig?
0: Well, the only Spinal Tap moment was to be on a golf cart with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. <laughs> oh, my god! Which was definitely Spinal Tap. What happened with that gig was I think they had Saturday and Sunday booked already. And then they realized, wow, there's going to be about 300,000 people on site on Friday waiting for the event to start and we don't have anything to distract them. So they quickly asked us if we would perform. So we actually ended up headlining the first night of Woodstock, which was an add-on night. So it was amazing to actually be on the stage and see people as far as the eye can see. You know, that's the only time that I've been in that situation where you actually could not see the end of the audience.
2: Wow. Nice. So Crosby, Stills, and Nash played with you that same night?
0: They were playing the next day, I think, but everybody was doing media, so we were all like buzzing around on golf carts, getting photos taken, doing interviews, and stuff like that.
1: <laughs> so if you guys were actually golfing, which one do you think of out of Crosby, Stills, Nash would be the caddy? I think it would be Nash.
0: Nash seems like the most together one of them. Yeah, I've had interactions with the other two. I never met Nash, except for that time at Woodstock. I didn't really meet him, just saw him. But I have encountered Stills and Crosby, and they're pretty much what you'd expect. (laughs) Neil Young, he's one of my favorite recording artists. Yeah, I
2: agree. And have you spent time with him?
0: Never met him.
1: My former bandmate, he played with Brian Wilson for years and they did the Bridge School concert and he went to Neil Young's ranch and I think he taught Neil to play California Girls or something on the Oregon.
0: Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it was really cool. We just did a gig with Brian Wilson maybe 2 years ago right before COVID. That was amazing. We opened for Brian Wilson's band and he had a huge band. Great lineup. Al Jardine was there. Sure. It was a special moment.
1: I went to Japan with them in like 2002 for the Pet Sounds tour because a couple of my bandmates were in the band and uh, I mooched off their Four Seasons hotel rooms. I saw Pet Sounds five times. You know, the wonderments are in that band and they're so tight. You know, the, the weak link in that band is Brian.
0: He's the composer, though. That's what I reminded myself. It's like watching Beethoven. Like this time, Brian was sitting in a wheelchair and he could barely play the keyboards and he was only intermittently singing, but still, it's like seeing Beethoven on stage.
1: Tell us about the famous bass player who could tell that you played bass just by watching you flip records at milwaukee's legendary record store 1812 overture
0: i was like spinning through the vinyl like that you know how you do with your fingers trying to see as many albums as and i was doing that and then i heard behind me excuse me are you a bass player (laughs) i look and i see stanley clark because stanley clark was in town playing with keith richards that time so i said Yes, and I believe you are too. <laughs> How did you know I was a bass player? Oh, the way you were flipping your fingers.
2: <laughs> you mentioned Keith Richards. I recall that Mick Jagger famously said that he did not want to be still singing Satisfaction at age 40. You're still playing Added Up at age, you know, 40 something. <laughs> yeah, we're all middle aged Wisconsin guys. You have any kind of philosophy on that
0: Well, it is a quandary of sorts, but mainly for Gordon because he's the sixty year old guy who's saying, "Come on, Dad, give me the car, you know, and of course, why can't I get just one fuck w- would be probably <laughs> a different answer now than it was when he wrote it when he was like eighteen. <laughs>
1: Replace fuck with Viagra. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's his cross to bear, so to speak. But <laughs> I've talked to him about it, and he says that it's just like acting. You just inhabit the character of the song. He's just channeling his teenage self. And then musically, I don't care because the bass parts are you know, pretty well constructed regardless of what age we are when we're playing it. So I still enjoy playing And obviously, the bass doesn't have a teenage aspect to it. It's just low notes coming out of a guitar that has only four strings.
2: (laughs) The notes never age.
1: Brian, you attended some legendary shows in Milwaukee back in the day, like when Bruce Springsteen played the Uptown Theater in 1975, right?
0: Springsteen and his band came on stage and they played a few songs, but then they had to stop. And he announced that there had been a bomb threat, so we had to clear the theater and come back in three hours. But anybody could get a refund if they wanted to. But nobody wanted to because what they had already played was so great. We knew that it was going to be a good show. We just had to wait three hours. I think most people went home or went to a local bar or something like that. I was just a really impoverished teenager, so I I think I just hung around (laughs) and came back, and then they blew the roof off the theater with incredible music. And I have had the opportunity to talk to Max Weinberg and also with Steve Van Zandt, and they remember that show very well, and they also concur that it was one of their greatest shows.
1: Wow, that is really cool. Another show I am so envious you got to see was Elvis Costello and the Attractions at was it the Palms?
0: Yeah, he was playing at the Palms, and there was a problem with that show, which was that nobody knew really who he was, <laughs> except for me and maybe fifty people there, and half of the people who went there thought it was an Elvis impersonator, <laughs> and the other half, of course, well, they knew who it was. And what they did was, (laughs) I remember this, you know, at that time, Elvis Costello with his glasses and his brown suit, you know, he looked like an accountant. Like to us, it didn't look like a rock musician. And they took all the gels out of the lights so that it was just white light beaming down on the band. It must have been hot on stage because you could just see the sweat pouring. He looked very uncomfortable. He was uncomfortable and angry. It was a really great show because he was playing for baffled Elvis Presley fans who thought he was an Elvis impersonator (laughs) and a handful of punk fans. He didn't seem to be having a good time, but we had a good time.
1: How much was the show?
0: 93 cents because it was sponsored by 93 QFM.
1: Oh God, Ugh. that's, hysteria. so I have a, I have a ticket stub, Elvis Costello and the Talking Heads were opening at Catch a Rising Star and it was a buck. Wow. I got to meet him a couple of years ago and I had him sign it. He goes, I remember that show. So awesome. <laughs> Speaking of cool, we just had a great conversation with Butch Vig for the podcast and he had some great Nirvana stories. You guys, the Violent Femmes, had a really interesting relationship with Nirvana back in the way beginning. Didn't you?
0: Yeah, they were supporting us on the tour in Australia. It happened because the Australian promoter sent me an advanced copy of Nevermind. Oh, this is the band we want to have on tour with you in Australia. I listened to it and I was like, oh, that's okay. They sound kind of like the monkeys. I like them. (laughs) (laughs) I, I didn't think about it much beyond that. And then between the time I listened to that cassette, and we did the tour. They had exploded. So here we were in a position where we were touring Australia with the biggest band in the world, opening the show for us. And we told them, you guys are bigger than us now. Do you want to swap slots? And No way. No way. We can't follow you because they knew that we were a better live band. So that's how it worked on that tour. But it was also bittersweet because Kurt was obviously having such a hard time and you know, he was in misery aside from the time when he was playing music or listening to us because, like, he would just set up on stage and he was huddled in a blanket and he would just be watching us. Uh, You know, like I can remember him just sitting off to my side looking up at the band. So he liked listening to us. He liked playing. But other than that, he was in misery.
2: Isn't that incredible? I mean, it's just you would imagine that when something that you've created takes off like that, it'd be thrilling, right? That rocket ride, but you're telling a different story.
0: Well, he had issues. He was on drugs, and I guess he was on drugs because he had physical issues. He had pain that he was self-medicating for. So, you know, he wasn't really able to relax and enjoy their success. The other two guys, Dave and Chris, they were, for lack of a better term, normal.
2: Right. I was Radiohead's original US tour manager when Creep was a big hit and their album Pablo Honey was doing well. You know, When you tell that story about Nirvana, and I think about the experience that Radiohead had on that first tour, which was mostly clubs, some small theaters, but they were kind of able to really appreciate and enjoy this positive first outing they had in the US. That was a cool experience and they were very aware of it and very appreciative of it. So that's kind of the two poles of that kind of thing.
0: Well, it's good that they appreciated it because when success happens instantly, people tend to think, oh, it's because of me. I'm great. you know, Or it was inevitable because we're so great. And sometimes people don't realize how lucky they are.
1: Being an artist or being good at a craft and dealing with fame, they're totally different skill sets, right? I mean, just because you're a great musician doesn't mean that you love the limelight or can deal with having your privacy invaded. It's a real hard thing to deal with the spotlight, especially when it happens so suddenly, like it did with Kurt Cobain.
0: Yeah, he would have been facing a lot of problems in his life, and then there was the, the intense, as you say, spotlight that was upon him, in particular because people really identify and they think oh he's singing about me or how did he read my mind and and this kind of stuff and that's a burden for a young guy like Kurt was.
2: It's fun to share stories about some specific places where you may have played and see if there's any smile tap moments that you remember from these places. So CBGB.
0: Well, CBGBs, they invited us to come and play with Richard Hell when he was making his comeback, which was in 1981 or 82, I guess, at the bottom line and CBGBs. So there we were. From Milwaukee. We had only ever played in Milwaukee, Chicago, maybe Minneapolis. And then we're opening up for one of our musical heroes, Richard Hell, in New York City. And it's like, wow. And I, I had never been to New York City. Victor had been to New York City. He was at the concert that Lou Reed recorded for Rock and Roll Animal. Oh, Gordon was born in New York City, but I had never been there. So it was like a big eye-opener. And then we got to CBGBs, and I thought, all my favorite bands started here. And, and then you just see, it's like a dive. <laughs> the, the dressing room is a mess. Toilet. But the gig was good. And unfortunately for Richard Hell, you know we're a much better band than he was able to do at the time. So we got a lot of attention from those gigs and pretty much launched our career.
1: Wow, that's great. You know, that brings me to one thing that we have to talk about, because we had on the Old Crow Medicine show, and they were basically discovered while busking in North Carolina, wasn't it, Alex?
2: Yeah, Boone. And discovered by Doc Watson.
1: By Doc Watson. Oh, wow. You have a great origin story, and I want to know if it's even true. Brian, can you tell us if the FEMS were really discovered while busking in Milwaukee?
0: So, we were unable to get gigs in Milwaukee, because we were not considered even a rock band. People didn't know what to think about us. So we weren't invited to play the punk clubs because we were playing acoustic instruments. None of the other bands really liked us. We kind of had a lonely life at first. So we went over to this place called Century Hall, which I call Centipede Hole. <laughs> and... um we went in there with our instruments, and we said, okay, who books the bands here? We want to meet them. Oh, go to the office upstairs. So this guy said, do you have a cassette? And we said, no, we just want to play it for you now, and you can just judge us. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. We only listen to tapes. Well, here we are. We want to play. How many? There's three of you, right? We we only book quartets or more. So oh, this no. guy was like just trying to give us the brush off. And he did give us the brush off. So we were dejected and we walked a few blocks and we saw the marquee that said pretenders at the Oriental Theater or the Asian Theater, as you call it now. And we thought, okay, let's come back here later and play for the people who are waiting in line and we'll try to pick up some spare change. But let's play now. So we just started playing. And after a few minutes, the pretenders gathered and invited us to open the show that night. Well, the Milwaukee audience unanimously booed us when we came on stage. (laughs) and Of course. We played only three songs, but at the end of the three songs, maybe half were cheering and half were booing. So we considered it a victory. (laughs) But the fact that they believed in our music, and and they even said, oh, yeah, there's another band in England kind of like you called Stray Cats, but you guys are much better. We took that to heart. You know, it was a vote of confidence from somebody who knew better than the Milwaukee people. You know, nothing came of it. We didn't go on tour with them. The next day we were back playing on the street. None of the clubs, they still didn't want us, but it was a confidence booster. And I remember the next day, the promoter, which I think was Alan Dahlberger, he was uh, inundated with complaints from all the Milwaukee bands, like, why did you let those bums play opening for the pretenders? You, you should have had our band, you know? So like all the Milwaukee bands thought they should have gotten the gig, but they didn't know that it was the pretenders who got us the gig. And it was our own initiative. If you call it that of playing on the street that made the opportunity happen. It's not because our manager talked to their manager or any of that stuff.
2: Being scrappy, being innovative. I mean, You were pioneering American Idol by going in and saying, we're just going to play for you, right? Judge us right now. Yeah. (laughs) That is awesome.
0: Well, I think that uh, it's probably one of the most successful busking events in history.
2: It is. Yeah. It's it's a great story. Another place I want to ask about is the 930 Club in Washington, D.C., because I'm guessing you've played the old 930 that was at 930 F Street and maybe even the new 930.
0: Well, the new 930 is one of our favorite venues. It's a great venue, and we've played there quite a bit in the new 930. But the old 930 was also a lot of fun and great, but it was a filthy dive. There are two memorable things that happened at the 930 Club for us, and one of them I'll tell you because you'll like it being from Milwaukee. But the first one was we generally would get a pizza after the show, But when we came off the stage and we went into the dressing room, there was the pizza just covered with rats. (laughs) (laughs) And we're like, okay, maybe we're not going to eat this pizza. (laughs) So then also the dressing room was the place where John Wilkes Booth hid out after he killed Lincoln.
1: Wow. Yep.
0: So, yeah, it's a very historic place for music, but... You know, you don't want to see rats on your pizza. Now, the other thing that happened was Snow Peck was playing... Say uh,
2: who Snow is, Brian.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Sigmund Snowpeck Peck Third is a multi-instrumentalist who is well-known in Milwaukee. <laughs> He's like a prog rock musician. But we brought him along as a member of our horn section. So we were playing at the 930 Club, and I was just playing, looking in the audience, and suddenly I see these young girls in the audience and they're all going like, oh, oh, oh." it was like looking like they're going to vomit. And I was thinking, we sound good. What's the problem? What's what's going on here? And then I turned around and I see Sigmund and he's got this big hunting horn and he's stark naked. (laughs) So he's just naked on stage playing this horn. The girls are going, oh. So that was a good moment at the 930 Club.
1: Uh, you don't want to see rats in your pizza, but even more, you don't want to see Sigmund Snowpeck nude.
0: Yeah, unsightly. <laughs> oh my but
2: goodness. But these are
0: the kind of things that could happen in the past. Probably now you couldn't do that.
2: Right. My story was radio had played at the old 930 and the crowd was loving it, having a great time. And there were some people that were crowd surfing. And Tom York stopped the song and said, Knock it off. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And the guy from Capitol Records said to me, like, what is that all about? Yeah. Why did he do that? <laughs> did you ever ask? It wasn't his thing. He wanted people to, to be watching the show <laughs> as opposed to enjoying it, I suppose. I, I don't know. Brian, thank you so much. This yes. has been absolutely a joy for me, 40 years in the making. Where can our listeners find out more about Violent Femmes and what you're up to, find out about more what you're doing independently as an artist, that sort of stuff?
0: Well, there's, of course, Facebook page, Instagram, website, vfems.com. Yeah, we hope to see you at the shows. And uh, I'm also a curator at a museum down at Tasmania, which is mona.net.au, mona that's the other thing that I'm doing.
1: Well, have a good tour.
0: All right, guys.
2: Thank you, Brian.
1: You know, Alex, that is probably the first time I've spoken to Brian in about 30 years. Yeah, it's a long time. Yeah. And you know, what was the biggest surprise for me during that entire interview? Tell me. That he went to a Springsteen concert. I just never thought of Brian Ritchie as a Springsteen kind of guy.
2: Well, Bruce defines the archetype of a hardworking musician, and he's an incredible performer. I mean, the E Street Band would play those three to four hour shows, and it's just nonstop energy from start to finish. But in any case, you know, the Springsteen show that Brian told us about, I mean, that is legendary in Milwaukee lore. And it got me thinking about... Other performances in Milwaukee that contain Spinal Tap moments. And I found this really good article online from a writer named Matt Wild from the Milwaukee record. Can I share a couple of these? Yeah, that'd be great. Well, let me just pick three here. In 1980, Black Sabbath, in one of its many incarnations, this one with Ronnie James Dio on lead vocals, played the Mecca Arena. And it turned into a riot after bassist Geezer Butler was hit in the head with a bottle. <laughs> It turned into
1: a rainbow in the dark. (laughs)
2: Uh, That wasn't Sabbath, though. That song was from Dio's cleverly named band, Dio. Yes. Let's critique these one by one. Is that a Spinal Tap moment? I think
1: so. I think anything with a guy named Geezer in it is a Spinal Tap moment. It doesn't matter what happens.
2: (laughs) You're able to ignore the bodily injury part. Yes. All right. Here's the next one. In 1992... When They Might Be Giants played a concert, it got kind of rowdy because they played a polka song. Of course, Wisconsin, with its mm-hmm. great German tradition, mm-hmm. the yeah. polka got so out of control that the crowd ended up collapsing the stage. And there were, again, several injuries. Oh, my God. I think it's more like polka-palooza. <laughs> <laughs> polka-palooza, I think so. Spinal tap moment? Yes, definitely.
1: Anything with polka is, is a spinal tap moment.
2: Well, it's like North, the injuries there. Lastly, this one is the infamous George Carlin routine at Milwaukee's fabled Summerfest back in 1972, where you had one of your greatest gigs. That's right. When he got arrested for uttering the seven words you couldn't say (laughs) on TV back then. But you could probably say at a preschool today. (laughs) Among liberal parents. Sure. Absolutely. Anyway, spinal tap moment.
1: Uh, You know, it's not... necessarily a Spinal Tap moment, but it's a damn interesting moment.
2: Times change, and we're out of time. Thanks to Brian Ritchie for reminding us that This Is Spinal Tap is indeed a documentary, and that Spinal Tap moments happen to everyone, even the coolest people you know. So if you're over watching March of the Penguins for the 11th time, check out Spinal Tap on iTunes or Amazon Prime. You can consider it to be personal enrichment. And let's give credit where credit is due. My co-host, Alan Keller, is the one who brought Brian to Too Much Happy in Perspective, which is just a great thing. We especially want to thank Alan's friend, Meg Bartanian, for helping us to track down Brian in Tasmania. Too Much Heavy Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Please follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TMEP show and join our mailing list on our website. That's TMEPShow.com. Although
1: it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with this is spinal tap and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by authorized spinal tap LLC or century of progress productions. This is Alan Keller, and on behalf of Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening. For today's tune, I'm going way back to the women's Liberace song, Border Town, that almost got us signed by Virgin Records back in 1990. I remember the moment my manager called us from Virgin Records and virtually guaranteed that my band was going to be the next big thing, and we were not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I still stand by the song, even though it's a demo. Kiss of death. <laughs> See you next time on Too Much Effing
3: Perspective. Sam lives in a border town. Chopped off a finger with a punch gun. Married two women there. Shot in the head by one. Border town. Nowhere bound Hung off the freeway Tucked in the gray Breaking down Walls around No one knows In a border town Only glass on the concrete road Sam lives in a border town they sell lottery tickets, girly shows in a high school gym. Once found a girl lying in the thickets. Sam lives in a border town Where there's a river called the interstate. Can't get on it from there. They just stand around and watch like piles of rotting freight. Bound, hung off the freeway, tucked in the grave, breaking down walls around. No one knows in the border town. Only glass on the concrete grows Sam doesn't think about life much. Doesn't see any reason. When you die, Sam says, you start your dreaming. Awaken in the grave as your casket closes Can't move an inch, can't wiggle your toes You're stuck in a border town Never to be found Sam lives in a border town where they have no business at all A state of transition On its knees Rolling into a ball On its knees Rolling into a ball On their knees Rolling into a ball On their knees Rolling into a into ball, a ball. On a ball. knees